2: Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, June 22nd. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, historian and author, Heather Frazier, talking about her new book, The History of the Peanut Allergy Epidemic. Although Heather does not have a child with autism, her research into why her then 13-month-old son had an anaphylactic reaction to peanut butter in the mid-1990s led her to the parallels between the epidemics and the other observations in her book. Welcome, Heather. Hi,
3: Terry. Thanks for inviting me.
2: You're welcome. Heather, let's start off with some foundational information. What is allergy and anaphylaxis?
3: Right. The uh, extreme form of allergy, um characterized by itchy hives, swelling, coughing, vomiting. This is anaphylaxis. It can also be characterized by a severe drop in blood pressure, and this would constitute anaphylactic shock, and it can kill someone. Uh, Anaphylaxis um, is an immune response, of course. It's designed, as I've come to understand it, to protect an animal, uh, any mammal, all mammals will exhibit allergy against substances that, that, that the body has deemed to be a threat. And uh, it decides something's a threat when the proteins of this substance, if it's a food, have managed somehow to get past the body's defenses and enter the bloodstream.
2: So is that the explanation for how one becomes allergic or sensitized to a food?
3: Yes, that's, that's right. When a foreign protein, when it gets into the bloodstream, the body will create antibodies that are then schooled to recognize that substance. And one of these uh, is uh, IgE, which is immunoglobulin epsilon. And these will communicate, this will prime the body ready for a defense so that when it, the body comes in contact with that substance, if it is the peanut, it will unleash a chemical response within the body communicating, uh, uh, histamine, everybody's heard of histamine, um, and it causes inflammation. The inflammation is the itchy hives, and you can also have those other symptoms that I mentioned.
2: What's the relationship between developing allergies and sensitization by injection?
3: Um, well, the there are four ways in which uh, the body can become sensitized. One, uh, the most common that people think of, is through is through eating of food, but in order to develop um, a sensitization, you would have to have fairly weak digestion for the food proteins, as I've described, it's all about the proteins, for those to escape into the bloodstream. Uh, So in the presence of healthy digestion, people are fine. Um, But you can also be sensitized through inhalation, anyone who has a pollen allergy would know that, and you can also be sensitized through injection. And um, it's interesting that the, the terms that we use today, allergy and anaphylaxis, were created over 100 years ago to describe a strange new illness that affected up to 50% of children who had been injected with what was very new at that time, um, uh, sera, or vaccines. And at that time, this, was, this illness was simply called serum sickness. No one knew what it was. Um, so there were a couple of, uh, doctors at that time, an Austrian pediatrician, his name was Clemens von Ferke, who studied these children with the serum sickness, and they had reacted adversely, and he observed that the symptoms that they were exhibiting resembled those of people who were hypersensitive to pollens and bee stings, and, um, better describe this altered reaction, he used a Latin-Greek term, uh, and that was allergy. And that was in 1905. It was that long ago. And at the same time, another doctor, Charles Richet, he stumbled on the condition during experiments to create a uh, vaccine to a jellyfish poison. And Richet began by injecting a number of dogs with trace amounts of poison expecting to create a level of protection or tolerance in the dogs, and and the dogs seemed to be fine. However, when he injected the animals a second time, he got something he did not expect, and that was a violent reaction that quickly killed the dogs. And it was this reaction that he called anaphylaxis, again another Latin Greek term, ana meaning anti- and phylaxis protection, so it was anti-protection. And um, further to that, Naturally, he proceeded to do more experiments in his lab, and he found that it was the proteins in the serum or the vaccine he was giving um, that had set up the condition that killed the dogs. And he found that any protein, including food proteins, would create this conject- in, uh, condition if they were injected into the bloodstream. So he, he experimented on various animals, um, injecting them with minute quantities of milk and meat proteins used cats and rabbits and horses, and he showed that this condition condition was common to all mammals, um, but he was clear, however, that just eating a food wouldn 't result in the condition in the presence of healthy uh, digestion
2: what 's the prevalence now of peanut allergy or the the prevalence historically. During what period did peanut allergy really mushroom, and, and what is it now?
3: Yeah, um, today I think most people agree that there is an epidemic of peanut allergy and other food allergies. There are very recent uh, numbers came out from Dr. Sickerer, who's at the Jaffe Institute in New York, and he calls these numbers alarming. And he's got uh, 2.1% of U.S. children are Peanut and nut allergic, and that's one point six million kids. He's got additional numbers where um it indicates about four million adults are allergic just to peanuts and um, he's been doing this is a telephone survey that he's been doing. I think he started it in ninety seven and the figures between the change between nineteen ninety seven and two thousand and two I sort of crunched the numbers, and I found that every year in that period. 95,000, an average of 95,000 children every year became peanut allergic. This is just in the U.S. And today they're suggesting about 5 million Americans now allergic to this one food. And you'll find um, similar percentages in uh, certain countries as well, in the U.K., Canada, Australia, Sweden. Uh, But the allergy does not appear to be an issue in Russia, for many eastern Euro- european countries it's very low in germany and israel and largely non-existent in india and uh... And until a few years ago they didn't think that it appeared in china um, but now uh, they have found that one percent of children in hong kong
2: are allergic
3: um, singapore as well it's just recently emerged there as well
2: let's backtrack a little bit on the statistics When did the allergy mushroom? What were the trends in emergency room visits and deaths? When did these things pick up, and in which countries? Yeah. Around
3: 1990, in my research, I found uh, documented evidence that around 1990, um, there was a sudden acceleration of the peanut allergy, and this I based on, emergency room records that are available um, in the U.S., Australia, and the U.K., that admissions for children suffering from food allergy um, uh, suddenly accelerated. There were also at this time two very interesting cohort studies from England. The Isle of Wight revealed a sudden rise in just a very short period of time um, they found that kids born in 1990 and tested at ages four and five showed that .5% of them were allergic. And a second cohort, uh, born just two years after the first showed a doubling of the allergy in over 1% of the kids. And it was just absolutely stunning. And nobody knew why. And this is, you, you get the headlines screaming, you know, rise of the killer food. And people were just stunned at this. They it it was it was very confusing and it still it still is um and it seems to be a similar case where uh you have the, the same events happening as i mentioned in it appears to be uh western countries um not exclusively but sort of the third sort of evidence that we've had this sudden surge at this time were teachers um school systems, when these kids became uh, of kindergarten age and they began school, the the schools the systems were just um, uh, suddenly, you know, taken aback. They didn't know what this was about. So um, all of this was just pointing back to a moment around 1990 where we suddenly see an acceleration of the condition and just in children.
2: What was determined as the profile of the person most likely to develop a peanut allergy?
3: Um, well, there were risk factors uh that doctors were quite anxious to to discover in the early nineties as the as the numbers of these allergic kids began to rise, and they looked at as we 've already talked about uh geography countries in which they lived, and it seemed that just uh, western countries were affected um, They looked at you know how much peanut were they eating they were looking at the age of the mother. They're all kind of risk factors that that they looked at, um, but nothing really fit the peanut allergy. Um, the most obvious risk factor that still preoccupies doctors today is just the eating of peanuts. And of course, you know, in the late 90s, not nobody's still understanding what was happening. They advised mothers who are pregnant and nursing, don't eat the food, just stay away from it. And that just seemed to make matters worse, even though they were avoiding the food. In one study in England, they saw the prevalence of the allergy hit 3%, and this is while they were avoiding peanuts. So they rescinded this advice. Um, They also recommended that in the U.S., but anyway, they they rescinded this advice, and they flip-flopped, and they said, well, maybe if we introduced the peanut really early, and this would create a level of tolerance in the kids. And they were following an example set in Israel where a peanut allergy was very low, and they had uh, a tradition of, of feeding children a peanut-based baby food. And so th- that hasn't yet been determined, and they've everything is sort of mired in conflicting information. So they set up a, a study called the LEAP study, Learn Early About Peanuts, to sort of figure out what's the best way uh, and the timing and so on for kids and moms to, to eat peanuts. Um Ironically, though, in Israel, sesame allergy is as high as peanut allergy is in the U.K. or the U.S., and doctors in Israel suggest that they're giving sesame too early to kids. So it, it's really a very confusing risk factor, the thing about eating peanuts. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's very confusing for mums.
2: So kids. although there are many theories out there, um, What did turn out to be the profile of the person most likely to develop a peanut allergy?
3: Um, As I went through the risk factors, um, a person emerged, and it was a toddler, and it was primarily two to one. It was a boy and living in a Western country, and it appeared as well from looking at as many of the risk factors and discussion that the doctors were having out there it was also a child who had some difficulty detoxifying um, for a variety of reasons, um, from toxins in the environment. Um, Dr. Ken Bach has a really quite an amazing book about the four A's um, and the the epidemics of these conditions in children. And he he points um, to to these and more. Um, So the profile of the child most likely to develop peanut allergy would be a boy who's a toddler living in a Western country um, with um, uh, difficulty detoxifying.
2: All right, and we'll pick up with this when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness channel with Heather Frazier. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymetica. We'll be right back.
5: Come.
2: We're back with Heather Frazier, author of The History of the Peanut Allergy Epidemic. And Heather, how do people order this book?
3: Uh, They can go to my website, um, peanutallergyepidemic.com. It's also available at amazon.com.
2: All right. So before the break, we were talking about a profile of the person most likely to develop a peanut allergy. This would be uh, a male, a toddler, one who had trouble detoxifying would this be correct uh,
3: yeah, living in a western country uh, primarily but not exclusively um, the uh doctors also um considered uh genetic um as as a you know as a as some way to identify what would make someone more susceptible than another and of course, they do find allergy threads between siblings and mothers, but for, for me, from the historical perspective, a genetic explanation for this allergy just didn't fit with the very simple facts of the abrupt acceleration. I mean, genes just don't change that fast. Um,
2: right. Right. So peanut consumption, age of ingestion, methods of preparation, farming, these didn't have any bearing on the on the epidemic of potential anaphylaxis, did they? um it didn't the proteins were the
3: same no matter where you grew the peanuts they considered at one point that in china where they didn't seem to find the peanut allergy that it was because they boiled their peanuts there this is a method of preparation and that because we roast our peanuts here that intensifies their allergenicity that that was the uh, an explanation for why it didn't exist well that was thrown out the window when it appeared in hong kong and it's um you know, and one percent of kids there now, all of a sudden, so that really doesn't make any sense either. Um, so, uh, of course, you know, going back to the, into the history of, of the peanut allergy, and or rather into the history of allergy and anaphylaxis, the words came from um, a reaction that the kids were having to having to the sera. Um, doctors here have bumped into the idea that well, vaccination, how would that be contributing? To an epidemic of allergy, it's the single biggest immune altering event in a child's life, but they really have largely dismissed it um, now there's very little information out there um, it, very rarely you'll find some doctor pop his head up and say, You know really is is this we should really look at this a little bit more, but they don't because it's a very dangerous place to go um, I only came across one very interesting um sort of an ad hoc study conducted by a high school student in Connecticut in, in two thousand seven. At first she thought that she'd look at the Amish communities uh, for peanut allergy um and the role of vaccination. But the C D C had rejected this group because they were genetically linked and it it didn't you know, that sort of skew the information. Um so she looked at two schools in an area where they tend not to vaccinate, where they have a very high exemption rate. Uh, in Vashon Island, in Washington, and two schools in her hometown, where they have a low exemption rate, and she found that in the Vashon schools there were just three peanut allergic kids, and in her hometown, in those two schools, there were 22, and significantly, all of the peanut allergic kids had been vaccinated. But this was a, you know, it's a high school student, you know, doing some really interesting information. It would be great if if uh, we could actually have a population study of vaccinated versus unvaccinated um, children. But there seems to be a lot of obstacles to achieving that.
2: Yet it was true that by 2009, the odds were 1 in 50 of developing a peanut allergy.
3: Yeah, and this year would certainly bear that out as well with the information from um, Dr. Sickerer from the Jaffe Institute where you've got 2.1% of kids. So the You've got a, approximately a one in fifty chance uh, every child of developing a peanut allergy, and that's pretty staggering. Um, so uh, there, there are a few theories out there that doctors have come up with um, that uh, many people may be aware of. One is the, the hygiene hypothesis that doctors often refer to, and um, it it grew out of an example um, of Berlin, where East Berlin had uh, very low prevalence of allergy and a lot of pollution, very unhygienic conditions of uh, the poor side of Berlin. And the west side, more hygienic, had all kinds of medical uh, interventions and vaccinations and ways in which they would kill bacteria and viruses to protect the children and themselves. And this was the hygienic protection that doctors decided had caused an imbalance in the immune system, resulting in a rise of allergy. Um, you know, in, in other words, you needed to have a burden of naturally acquired disease to help train your immune system to create this balance. But while this really kind of made it kind of made some sense, it didn't. Again, it didn't explain what I'd identified historically as this sudden acceleration in 1990 for the peanut allergy.
2: Um, yes. Why the peanut? So let's go back a little bit. Um, first of all, can you tell us about the rather squalid beginning of vaccination and then how mass vaccination began.
3: Yeah, I've already mentioned serum sickness. Uh-huh. I, I, I asked the question, you know, had mass allergy happened before in our history and to kids? And, of course, it had. And this was the serum sickness from which our, these, the two words, allergy and anaphylaxis, come from. So um, vaccination, of course, I need to know a little bit more about that, um, was originally developed around 1800 in response to just one disease, and that was smallpox. And there was a country English doctor named Jenner who saw a connection between cowpox, a disease of cows and people, and smallpox. And he noticed that milkmaids, it seemed, who were around cows all the time, of course, didn't ever get smallpox. So he began to experiment. And using a lancet tool, a pronged fork, he scratched the skin of volunteers and deliberately applied Pus from a cow infected with the cowpox um, to the wound of the volunteer, and the person went through the disease, and then Jenner re-scratched the volunteer and applied smallpox liquid. And when this person did not contract the disease, um, this was very exciting, and Jenner called his new technique vaccination after the word vacca for cow. His results were then published in many languages, um, and this led to, in many countries, again, mandatory vaccination laws. Um, So, of course, uh, germ theory not being too far behind Jenner's discoveries, um, uh, there were the creation of liquid vaccines for other diseases. Um, But it was rather impractical to be using um, a pronged fork, it seemed. um, So they fell across, of course, the very convenient a new device, new at that time, brand new technology, the hypothermic syringe, invented in around 1860. So at the close of the 19th century, they began pairing the vaccines, the liquid vaccines, with the needle. It was it was very convenient. You could measure precisely the match you were giving and package them together, ship them around. It uh, was very, very convenient. Um, and um, one of the very first one was uh, diphtheria antitoxin. And... It was, uh, of course, vaccination being mandatory in many countries. They needed to produce somehow large quantities of it. So they used the blood of horses infected with the disease, from which to make the sera. Horses were bled twice weekly. They they went through the process of of uh, creating millions of doses of antitoxin sera. Um, and of course, you know, this sort of brings us up again to the serum sickness and other adverse conditions because of the impurities in the vaccines. And, again, they found that it was the proteins in the sera that were causing the illness, and they moved very quickly to purify the vaccines of these dangerous proteins. And doctors are conscious today. They always have been of proteins in the vaccines and how dangerous they can be if they access the bloodstream.
2: Right. Okay. So let's go to the debut of the peanut allergy, and we're going to seem to digress a little bit. But tell us about peanut oil and penicillin
3: uh yeah i uh peanut allergy first appeared as far as i could tell in any number in, of people at the close of world war 2 and i'm looking at the medical literature and there were small studies of children being injected with penicillin and now why how would penicillin cause peanut allergy well it was at the close of the war that a us army doctor named Romansky solved a very big problem about penicillin and that was extending the effectiveness of this wonder drug in the bloodstream. Penicillin at that time was only by injection and it would last in the body only for an hour before being excreted by the kidneys. So Romansky um, mixed the penicillin with beeswax and peanut oil. And what the peanut oil and the wax did is it coated the particles of penicillin so that when it was injected the body would slowly metabolize these ingredients and slowly release the drug into the body. And this was wonderful. One dose would last a whole day instead of just an hour. And he was uh, given the US Legion of Merit from President Truman for this invention. Um, however, they soon discovered after the war, when they were better studying this new formula, that it had actually created peanut allergy in some people and in these studies in the children. So they set about to better refine the oil. Refining a process that removes the proteins uh, as much as you possibly can, but you can never remove all of it. Um, So subsequently, um, it developed the peanut oil. Developed a history of use in the penicillin, and it very it it became sort of a common thing to include in other drugs. It was easy to metabolize. um, It was available. Uh, It's a homegrown crop. There are all kinds of reasons to use it. And um, as long, I guess, as you inject it deep into the muscle and not into the bloodstream, most people were fine with it. So in the 1960s, um, an important new adjuvant was created by Merck. This is a vaccine additive. It was called Adjuvant 65-4. And I found this news of this in the New York Times and other newspapers, and it was intended... To, uh the, the additive is intended to provoke the body to produce antibodies and to make the vaccine more effective. Well, the adjuvant 65-4 was made from peanut oil and you know, other ingredients, including a form of aluminum.
2: All right. And we are going to continue with the leap from the peanut to the vaccine to the allergy epidemic when we come back from break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Heather Frazier. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzomedica. We'll be right back.
4: Opinions, Options, Answers. Voice America Health and Wellness.
5: Com.
6: Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way. With celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages, Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile.
2: We're back with Heather Frazier, author of The History of the Peanut Allergy Epidemic, which you can purchase and learn more about at www.peanutallergyepidemic.com. You can also find this on Amazon. And, Heather, before the break, we were talking about Merck's adjuvant 65 Uh, which came out in the 1960s. You mentioned there was uh, also some aluminum thrown into the mix. And uh, what's the relationship between a vaccine adjuvant and antigen, biologically and cost-wise?
3: Yes. One of the reasons that a vaccine maker will include an adjuvant an additive is that it is antigen sparing. It allows for the vaccine to be Equally as potent, or more so, while using less of the actual antigen, which is very expensive. Um, so it's it's a great thing to add if you can do it. It it will save it's cost saving measure, as well as one that, that enhances potency of a vaccine. But in any in the in the readings I've done about vaccines, um, whether it be a textbook that they use at medical school, um, or in the medical literature, they talk about this balance between um, potency and toxicity, that there's always some um, trade-off that they make in order to achieve the levels of, of protection that they want using a vaccine versus the adverse events that they know are going to happen in a certain type of person or a number of people. Um, and, uh, you know, just thinking about the peanut oil and the peanut oil being in an adjuvant with an aluminum um, additive designed to provoke the body not only to create the antibodies that are desired, but it also will create the ones that are not desired, that being the IgE antibody. And that's that's well recognized and acknowledged in the literature. So, and in, in addition to that, the oil itself, we've talked about the proteins and how those are the sensitizing um, elements in any vaccine that, This oil, the FDA acknowledges, and you can find this online, that there are trace intact proteins in the oil that vary depending on who's refining it. But because, again, that this oil has developed a history of use after the war, um, it was given GRAS status in foodstuffs. What's GRAS status? Yeah, generally recognized as safe, G-R-A-S. And as such, the oil doesn't need to be labeled in foods. And this is also supported by the World Health Organization that they've, they've done a study of this. They're uncomfortable with it, but they, they're going with its history of use. But as for its labeling on a vaccine, um, this is protected as a trade secret and it's sort of exempted from your Freedom of Information Acts. And I looked at them in the UK, the US, and Canada. They're not obliged to tell anybody um, what might be in the vaccine. You can get a short list of ingredients. But, um, you know, given that. Pseudonymity has become such a huge problem now, and everyone's aware of it. Um, in Europe, they've got new guidelines where they they expect corporations, ethically morally, will list this on any kind of a, a package insert. Um, but there's no law compelling them. It's if it's accepted as safe, and you know, there's a, there's a tug of war going on between you know what's the right thing to do in the guidelines and you know, what they're compelled to do by law. I mean, the, the, even the FDA says the oil is safe. So, you know, it, it's in there, and it's in there today. It's in, if you look online, you can find patents where they list peanut oil as one of the preferred ingredients in certain types of adjuvants. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it, it it comes as a real shock to a lot of people when, when I show them the, the article from 1964 that was in, the New York Times, or I show them the patents and so on. It's like it's just too incredible to to conceive of that this could be that this could possibly be. Um, but what happened in in the 19 the, around 1990 to precipitate this sudden acceleration? And in um, a very interesting set of circumstances happened at that time in the U.S. and other countries followed suit. We all followed what the U.S. did in conjunction with World Health Organization that. There were so many lawsuits, apparently, is sort of a setup to the situation, that vaccine makers were being sued so much in the 80s and the the 70s and the the 80s that a lot of them just left the market. They couldn't handle it. They weren't making any money. So the U.S. had been uh, left, potentially, says the um, Institute of Medicine, in danger of not having any vaccines. Oh, um, the government needs to take steps. So they the or Reagan did the in 86 the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act which you're probably very familiar with and the compensation program in 88 which basically stopped almost all lawsuits right there and the vaccine makers could breathe a great sigh of relief they were protected buffered from from uh, lawsuits um, at the same time the government saw another danger to public health from another source and this was from parents who were slow to vaccinate their kids before the start of school, the preschoolers. So um, vaccination rate was very low in 1985. Um, so they implemented programs targeting preschoolers with a goal that Bush, um, the Bush government set of 90% all kids vaccinated by 2000. And they also decided that they would create a list of priorities of diseases in the mid-'80s. And at the top of that list, was Hib B, influenza B, which is the bacteria that can cause meningitis in some kids. Um, So the schedules changed. They increased, they targeted preschoolers, all in this window between 1988 and the early 90s. This change corresponds with the documented moment at which the peanut allergy accelerated and other food allergies and other adverse events. And um, it was just an amazing moment of political, economic, social, medical uh, forces that all came together to, to make this moment. And if we step back in history just for a moment and get a little bit of perspective, we see that of the functional mechanisms that can create allergy, ingestion, inhalation through the skin injection, the only one that is implicated historically in mass allergy just in kids is injection. So something went wrong at around 1990, it, and it's persisted.
2: And what parallels, Heather, do you see between the rise of peanut allergy and the rise of autism?
3: I, your your listeners and yourself, would probably be able to identify a lot in what I've described, and what's in the book, as having um, parallels in their own experiences. Um, what what I've seen is that um, it there's a gender um, bias where two boys for every one girl has peanut allergy, and it's a similar statistic in autism where I believe it's four to one, four boys for every girl that have uh, this condition, and Asperger's is ten to one. Um, so th- there is this, and there's also the window um, of acceleration that happened, and it, it just was too intense. And speaking of, of the... Um, the um, things that would make a child different. Again, um, is there something about boys? Is there something about the children that have these conditions that make them more vulnerable? Are they are they unable to detoxify? Um, you know, is there some, you know, and if, if it is indeed vaccination that is precipitating all of this, like a last straw on the camel's back, is there some way that we can screen these children and to to change the schedules and to make them less intense and, um, You know, there are all kinds of things that we can do at the end of the day because parents are aware and alert to the fact that there is damage being done, even though the government says and the doctors say, no, no, it's all safe, the parents are, are listening. And the mothers have their own intuitive uh, feelings about it and making decisions where they're choosing not to. They'd rather have the measles than have of autism or peanut allergy or any of the other adverse conditions that can come from too much, too soon in life, in in this regard, and uh, it, yeah.
2: And Heather, what parallels do you see between authorities sticking their heads in the sand with regard to the peanut allergy epidemic and the autism epidemic? And you also mentioned in your book theories that sounded so much like autism, even in so far as looking at head circumference for. Uh, some clues to why there was a peanut allergy epidemic.
3: Well, that was one of the risk factors, the head circumference, and um, it that, that's a very complicated one that I'm not sure kind of uh, fit the peanut allergies, almost like they were uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel when they right. finding, you know, comparing head size to, you know, to numbers of allergies. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the way the government has and authority figures have dealt with the the epidemic of autism, um, you know, when pe- penile allergies are kind of on the heels of what's happening with autism um, and the struggle that parents have gone through just to have a doctor recognize that, no, it wasn't coincidence that, you know, uh, how many hundreds of thousands, millions of children at 18 months of age approximately fell ill and regressed in autism, you know, I, we're tired of hearing that it was a coincidence. Listen to the parents. The parents are going to make a decision not to vaccinate, uh, ultimately, if they feel that the threat to their children is so great. They weigh the risks themselves in the absence of sufficient information and adequate and truthful information from from the authority figures. Um, they're, they've, come, they've come to a crossover point, is what I like to call it, um, where the fear of the disease is much less than the fear of the adverse outcome from the shots. And I don't think there's any there's anything that they could say now that would, that would uh, dissuade the very um, the vast majority of parents with uh, children with autism of that fact. But the parents with peanut allergy that I'm just coming to meet um, through the Internet and through my talks and so on, uh, it, it's a shock to them that there was peanut oil. They used peanut oil, and it, they... There's a lack of information, is what it comes down to, and um, I, I see the future for for this condition and this group of children to be the same as what is happening with the autism community. And as you are successful, as the, the parents and organizations are successful in making changes, um, I you know that that will give um, parents of peanut allergic children um, an example. Um, to follow, absolutely.
2: All very well put, Heather, and uh, I really appreciate what you're you're saying and your uh, willingness to say it. Because so often parents of children with autism are accused of looking to lay blame on something, usually vaccines. But you don't have a child with autism, and you came to the same conclusions as we did. Something smells rotten in Denmark. So, uh, before we go to break, I really want to thank you for this superb and meticulously researched book. Thank you very much, Terry. Okay, and I recommend—I highly recommend this to everyone. This is one of the the very best books that I have read on um, on this topic. Uh, so let's go to break, and we will be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Heather Fraser. Thank you to our sponsor, Zymedica. We'll be right back. we're back with Heather Frazier, author of The History of the Peanut Allergy Epidemic. And Heather, I wanted to talk a little bit about the autoimmune index that you mentioned in your book. I found that interesting.
3: Um, that was um, in an article in the Wall Street Journal where um, uh, a writer concerned about the profits that uh, uh, investors were, were making in the pharmaceutical industry that he thought it would be a good idea if they created an index uh, whereby they tracked uh, the growth in childhood epidemics, it included allergy and diabetes and uh, other conditions um, affecting children related to growth in uh, pharmaceutical sales. And it was just—it was a an idea that he put into uh, an article, but it struck me as as being so far removed from the experiences parents, um, that, that, uh, that there was a, such a level of callousness and um, cold-heartedness that it just struck me and I, I put that in the book as something that pointed to perhaps what, what other people were thinking and there is that other side to it because if you have 2% of children with peanut and nut allergies, there's a whole rest of the population that may not, that does not and so what are they doing? What are they thinking? How are they dealing with this? And uh, there are even doctors that that um, point to, you know, there are more people that die from lightning strikes than die from peanut, which just enrages um, parents of peanut-allergic children, of course, because they spend their time looking for, for threats, looking for peanuts, protecting them from it. There are children, um, uh, parents, uh, who are basically shut in. They're so sensitized to the odor of the peanut, that um, they've even come up with uh, allergy allergen-sniffing dogs that have been carefully trained to smell any uh, peanut and protect the child in that way. It is just the most amazing uh, phenomenon that uh, you have kids that are that that sensitive.
2: Yeah. Life uh, is just not like when you and I were kids, Heather. I remember walking on the pier in Atlantic City, and there was a whole Mr. Peanut store, we wouldn't be able to have that anymore you have to be paranoid that if you're sitting uh I don't want to say paranoid because that suggests some illegitimacy but it's and this is a legitimate, very legitimate concern that if you're in an airplane that you know the person has trail mix in front of you and they're dropping some peanuts it's rolling on the floor and your kid might pick one up yeah it, there is
3: right now um quite a flurry of activity happening online where uh there the um the department—I uh, forget what it's called in the U.S.—but they're, they're thinking to ban peanuts from planes. And there's there, people are divided on this. Of course, the parents are just absolutely frightened that they would keep them on the planes. Um, yeah. But I, I, uh, at the same time as you kind of had um, Dr. Sickerer coming out with his new figures of this uh, 1.6 million kids being allergic, and the potentially banning them from airplanes. And so on. That um, at the same time, you also had have um, a genetically modified peanut emerging on the scene here. It's been in the works for a little while. They started growing it in um, India first, and it moved. It it was given um, status to be grown in the United States in 2007, and it comes out of research at the University of Georgia, I believe. Um, However, uh, while they're calling this a hypo allergenic peanut the lead on this um has has been quoted here um given the number of allergenic proteins in a peanut she she doubts that developing an allergy-free peanut is really realistic in other words um this hypoallergenic protein reduced peanut still has everything in it that a parent of a peanut allergic child would still not want um so why are they producing it and i it it's you know just These are just my own thoughts on the matter, that um, the peanut industry would be nervous. If you've got this many millions of people allergic to this food, in spite of the fact that it's a huge industry, of course, um, but peanut, as we've just talked about, isn't just in sandwiches or on planes. The peanut oil that's refined to reduce these proteins is in our vaccines, it's in baby formula, it's in vitamin capsules, it's disguised in vegetable oil, in many foods, and it doesn't have to be listed. Um, with so many people avoiding peanut now, if they were to put that on a label um, it i wouldn't i wouldn 't buy it um how many millions of people wouldn 't buy it um so i 'm just wondering now where does this g m o peanut fit? if it 's got reduced proteins? are they hoping that that um they 've reduced the, the protein sufficiently that when they do refine it, will they end up with a satisfactorily low level for the FDA and all the other authorities that, that need to pass this oil and, and maintain its status, will it be sufficiently low that they will continue to, or they will maintain their GRAS status, generally recognized as safe, and still be able to put it in the vaccines and not label it there either? Uh, where you know, Hey, pretty sorry? scary thoughts. It, it's an amazing sort of um Political maneuverings. It seems to me that, that I, at the same time as you have people really worried, millions of people now worried about peanut, that um, they're trying to hang on to their their status and keep it in, um, in these in these medications and injected medications too. So the I'm I'm suspecting that the peanut allergy has just been backed into a corner, and without these protections, um, that um, not only, I mean, if they have to list as a as a toxin and something contraindicated, if they have to put that on a, a package insert on a vaccine, you know, that would be a blow to the consumer confidence, not just in the peanut industry but in vaccine makers. Uh, you know, that would just blow the lid off everything if they had to put that on a label. They're not. Nobody's going to let that happen. I don't think that's going to ever happen. Well, I shouldn't say never.
2: Heather, I just want to touch on a couple more things before we close. You mentioned a 1997 New Zealand study in your book and what it found with regard to vaccinated versus unvaccinated children in relation to asthma and allergies.
3: There have been a couple of studies that have touched on this, and this just popped up in relation to the DPT and the polio vaccines, that they did indeed find that um, uh, there was a great uh, relationship between vaccination and the... Uh, in the particis toxin in particular, having direct IgE-inducing effects. And uh, that in combination with the aluminum, as we've already discussed, in vaccines um, had uh, resulted in an increase in asthma. Um, so that's a very rare occurrence where you find that kind of a study where they link them, but then you'll also find uh, doctors coming up with an opposite opinion, with an opposite study. So you go back and forth on these things and you're never quite clear. There's a confusion that is developed through the medical literature on what what is happening and what, you know, it, and I don't know if that's deliberate or not. Well, yeah, it
2: doesn't, um, It to me it doesn't mean that the reaction is rare. It just means that the people doing that kind of a study are rare. You know, yes, that's... Putting, that's yeah, putting out that kind of a study are rare. Mm-hmm. So... Well, Heather, I want to thank you so much again for this superb book. And, again, I highly recommend it, The History of the Peanut Allergy Epidemic. This book was one of the biggest wows in my reading um, that I've had, Uh, an excellent, excellent book. Again, the website is www.peanutallergyepidemic.com. And, um, Heather, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Terry. It was a pleasure. Thanks. To our listeners, if you're in Phoenix this coming Saturday, June 26th, please go to the Ritz for movies, a book signing for Dr. Wakefield's book, Callous Disregard, and a lecture following. For a printable flyer or more information, please email me at tauranga at autism1.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enza Medica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.